Today we're going to be talking about patience, more specifically the patience of Job. So turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to James chapter chapter 5, sorry. (laughs) There's not seven chapters in James. We'll just be working on chapter 5. And um, I'm actually going to um, go back through and start not at verse 7 where my section picks up, but I'm actually going to start uh, at the very beginning of the chapter in chapter 5 and then go through the section that Don preached on last week um, and read all the way through that. So James chapter 5 verse 1 reads, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your heart as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. We trust that the Lord will bless the reading of his word. So here we have two sections. And if you didn't notice, at the beginning of verse 7, there's kind of a transition. And the first part and the second part before that Therefore, right in the middle, sound very, very different. So the question is, why does James go from talking about the misery and judgment on the rich and then right into, ah, but you guys need to be patient. It doesn't, at first, seem to make a whole lot of of sense or flow naturally. And so I hope this morning that we'll come to understand the bridge between these two and what the Lord is saying in the passage. So last week, Don talked about um, and fully explained this section. And just as a quick review, we talked about the rich that heap up for themselves money and, uh, and, and possessions and all these things by hard work and by um, oppressing others, oppressing the poor. And we see that their riches tell against them because they're not good stewards of what the Lord has given them. And furthermore, they've taken advantage of other people to get it. And there's all sorts of condemnation that comes upon these people for being rich. But then in verse 7, it says, Therefore be patient, brethren. And there's an important thing that I need to point out right away is that that first part is addressed to the rich, the corrupt, the selfish. But the second part, it says, therefore be patient, brethren. That's us. 
There we are. And so there's a very um, important distinction. We need to remember the audience that James is talking to. It says back at the beginning of James, he says, in the introduction it says, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. And a lot of times we can fall into the trap of when we're reading through an epistle, we think, oh, this is written to a specific church. But really, this, James wrote this to a much broader audience, and this broader audience would have included rich people as well as poor people. It would have included the saved and the unsaved. And so when we read through this passage, we need to understand that James is addressing one section of his audience with the rich. And certainly, if, you, if you're sitting here this morning and you find yourself that these verses apply to you, then take them to heart. They're for you. And the, Lord of the word of the Lord is still powerful. But I hope that most of us will be addressed in the brethren statement. We're here, we're believers in the Lord. And... There's a call to be patient. Patient in light of the, um, the wicked on the earth, the oppressors, the things that cause us the question, is God a God of justice? Will He, in fact, be faithful to His people? Well, that's what we're here to talk about this morning. So, as I read through uh, James again... I, bear, I want you to bear one, uh, one little story back from the book of Luke. Keep this in mind. Um, remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus? How the rich man had all those good things. He fared sumptuously every day. He ate to his heart's content. And he took no notice of poor Lazarus sitting outside of his gate begging for whatever sustenance that he could find. And it says that Lazarus' only comfort was the dogs that were licking his sores. That's, uh, that's not a great deal of comfort. And here the Lord provides for us more comfort than Lazarus got. But Abraham, um, in, the, in the story that Jesus tells in Luke um, chapter 16 and verse 25, Abraham says to the rich man who's in torment, he says, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And that's part of... So kind of hold that dichotomy in your mind as we go through the sermon this morning. There's the people that receive all the good things they're ever going to receive in this life because they haven't invested in the next. They've wasted their riches on the here and now. And they've had no foresight to think of, oh, there's eternity, there's a God... And for Lazarus, he trusted in the Lord for his provision. And when he finally went to meet the Lord, he was welcomed into Abraham's bosom. And so that's the sort of, um, the, the two sides, as it were, of, of the message today. So as I read through James chapter, uh, chapter 5 again, verse 7, Think of Lazarus and see if this doesn't make a little bit more sense how these two passages fit together. Therefore be patient, brethren, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So let's look at, then at this illustration 
I'm going to stop there for the moment. Let's look at this illustration of the farmer and see what he has to tell us about patience and waiting. The farmer is the illustration of patience because he works hard. He goes out, he plants his crops, he tills the soil, and he may have prepared all winter getting the uh, livestock ready, maybe repairing his plow, and when it comes time to plant, he's out there working hard, tilling the soil, gets the seed in, but once he's got the seed in, there's a period of waiting. There's nothing that the farmer can do to guarantee that those seeds are going to sprout. What if they're bad seeds? What if they don't get the moisture they need? What if the ground is too hard? There's nothing, there's not much he can do about that. But then, as the seeds receive warmth and moisture that the Lord has provided, they sprout. And he may have to work to keep the fields weeded, but again, he's waiting. What is he waiting for? Well, he's waiting for the harvest. That's what he's looking forward to. But he has to wait patiently for the, for the rain to come. And, you know, nowadays with our um, industrialized farms and our irrigation systems, there's a certain more of that that, that the modern-day farmer is taking into his control. But not everywhere is like that. And certainly back then in these days of farming, they didn't have very sophisticated irrigation systems. They had to wait for the Lord's provision. So it was a much more real to them illustration of, yes, we're dependent upon the Lord for the rain upon the earth and for the sunlight. Things that we might take for granted. But it's an illustration to us of patience in the Lord for the things that are outside of our control. In contrast to the rich person who says, I have everything at my fingertips. Ah, the, the, uh, the workers are out working in the fields. I can make them work harder. I can withhold their wages and they can do nothing against me. And as much as they might cry out, they have no power. See, the rich man tries to take everything under his control. He tries to store all of his wealth in barns. And the Lord says, you fool, as we talked about last week. Why? Because... The Lord controls more than just the rain and the sunshine. He controls the provision. And that rich man might have his soul required of him that very night. And all of that preparation that he's done in material things has been a a worthless investment. He's piled up riches for himself in his last day. What What good's the money if he never gets to spend it? And um, there may be the question of whether um, James here is talking about providing the Lord providing for our physical needs or for our spiritual needs. You know, the, the farmer definitely is a, is a physical story, right? It's the farmer's physical needs. But I think in this passage, I think both can apply. I think the Lord certainly throughout the scriptures, whether it's Matthew or Psalms or Proverbs or wherever you look, we see the Lord providing for the physical needs of everyone. It says even he, the Lord even cares for the sparrows, right? Two of them are sold for a copper coin. But the Lord's looking out for the sparrows. How much more does He look out for us? And it's certainly true that the Lord looks out for our physical needs. And when we're following Him and serving Him, it says that if we wait patiently here in this passage, that the Lord will provide for us as well. 
never says that he promises that we can be rich in material possessions. That's not in the Bible. But he does promise to provide for us. And so that's one application we can take out of here. But I think also it applies to the spiritual um, realm as well. And when we labor in ministry, whatever it is, whether it's doing the yard work here at the chapel or attending to the building or preaching or teaching or working in the nursery or Sunday school, all those ministries, the Lord sees the work that we do and how we wait patiently for His provision and the fruit of that ministry. Because I can stand up here and preach all day and all night, but unless the, which I won't do, um, <laughs> but which the, uh, the Lord takes those words that, that, that I'm presenting to you this morning, and the Lord blesses that. It's not in any wisdom or cleverness of my own speech that I speak this morning that spiritual work is done. That's all the Lord and His provision into our hearts. And we, um, even if you think back to the parable of the sower, right? Father goes about sowing the seed, but we look to Him for the provision. One plants and another waters, but the Lord gives the increase. And so I think it definitely applies to our spiritual walk as well. Whether it's our... Um, choice of ministry or, or many other important decisions in our life as we seek to follow the Lord's will. Um, you know, D- David in the Psalms cried out many times. He says, Lord, I've, I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm serving the people. I'm slaying the Philistines. And yet, he's, under the, he's, he's running from Saul. And he's saying, Lord, I'm doing your will. Where's your provision? And he had to be patient, right? Saul didn't get, or, uh, sorry, David didn't get the kingdom right away. He had to wait for a long time. But it says earlier in James, it says, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is in the business of developing our characters as we wait for Him and wait for His provision. Someone once uh, said to me, I I told them that uh, that I was praying for patience in a certain matter. He says, you know what? The Lord always answers prayers for patience. He says, wait. (laughs) Patience is the thing that has to be taught. You can't just go, ah, now I have patience. It doesn't work that way. You learn patience by waiting. Um, I remember uh, some of my earliest memories as a kid, actually, are going fishing with my parents. And I don't know how many of you might play fishing video games, but fishing video games are not at all like the real thing. (laughs) You throw your hook out there, and fish don't just magically swim towards the bait. (laughs) You've got to leave it out there for a while. You may have to leave it out there all day and catch nothing. And even Jesus' disciples experienced that, right? They fished all night and caught nothing. But I remember the first time I ever went fishing was up in uh, Estes Park out of the lake. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching my bobber. And the sun wasn't even up yet. And the sun comes up. And then it's higher in the sky and higher in the sky. And my bait and bobber are still sitting there completely untouched. (laughs) I'm like, Dad, (laughs) what's going on? Wait, son, wait. Another hour goes by, the sun's climbing up higher in the sky. Dad, where are all the fish? <laughs> They're in there, son, just wait. And yes, lo and behold, 
I did catch a fish. I don't even think it was that day, though. I think it was later. Or no, we went to a different lake. That's what happened. We eventually went to a different lake. But um, it taught me, that's, that's one of my earliest memories of learning patience. Because up until that time as a kid, I came to the table and there was food that my mother had prepared and I didn't know anything about waiting. But there is the, my bobber sitting out there on the lake, up and down on the little waves. Wait, son, wait. But the Lord is faithful and we'll see that. <clears throat> and I want to not miss one very important point in this verse. It says right there in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Now, to the audience that James was talking to until that day, they didn't see the coming of the Lord before they died. So why would James tell them, wait for something that's not going to happen during your lifetime? Why would he tell them to wait that long? I, I certainly have things that I'd like to have before my lifetime is over. But James is saying, look, all the things that are wrong with this world, all the things that we look for to the Lord to provide, He doesn't guarantee that He's going to provide them in this life. We may struggle in ministry or struggle in our day-to-day needs for year after year. The Lord always provides what we need But there may be a struggle, continuous struggle, all the days of our lives. But when we see Him face to face, we're not going to have another need ever. We're not going to have a care in the world. And it says of that day that the Lord will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All those things of this world that cause us grief, that we sorrow and struggle over, God's going to wipe those away as He wipes away the tears, all those things that we worry about. And so this farmer waiting for the Lord's provision, we may have to wait for a season for the rains to come, but we may have to wait until we see Him face to face to see the fullness of His grace and compassion and mercy. So don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, right, God, I've waited long enough. God knows when long enough is. But we know that just because the time of waiting may be longer or shorter, they're no less certain. The Lord will provide. His compassion and mercy are unchangeable. And we can take hope in Him. So then in verse 8, it says, Establish your hearts. What does it mean to establish our hearts? Well, I looked up the word establish, and um, the meaning I, I thought it meant, which is a common one, is to, to grab onto something, to, to hold down. And that's certainly true. It means to, to be anchored. But there's also another connotation of the word, which means that it's not only anchored down, but it's aligned. It's aligned towards something. And that, so that meaning brings into light what he says about waiting until the coming of the Lord. Because as we're anchored down in our faith in the Lord's provision and our hope in His return, we're aligned towards that and our hearts take hope. And that's what we're looking forward to. 
We're not just anchored down wherever we happen to fall. We're anchored down in hope in the Lord's return. And so the question becomes then, how much are we looking forward? Are we aligned towards looking towards something else? If I'm, if I'm aligned and looking towards that better job, and I'm establishing my heart that way, then I'm missing all the blessings that come from being aligned in the way that the Lord wants me to be aligned, looking to Him. I'm missing it. And so we have to establish our hearts, align them in hope of the Lord's coming. A few years ago, one of my, my teachers um, in the class, we were talking about um, things that we hope for. And Ms. Um, Schubert said, there's three truths that we humans are apt to forget that make all the difference in our lives if we keep them in mind. So here's the three truths. The first one is, God is present always. He always sees us. He always knows what's going on. And so oftentimes we forget as we go about our day-to-day jobs or making breakfast in the morning or brushing our teeth at night. God's there. He's right there with us. He sees what we're doing if we're doing bad. But He's also right there encouraging us if we're following in His will. And so many times we're apt to forget that because we only see with our eyes the things that are physical and we forget about the spiritual realities that are also there. And Matt talked about that on Wednesday night for those of you who are there. There's a, there's a spiritual reality that is always present whether we are aware of it or not. It's always there. So that's the first truth. The second truth is that we are going to die. The world is bent on forgetting about that. The, uh, it says even in the times of Noah, they went on marrying and giving in marriage and pretending like nothing was any different than any other day. But then that first drop of rain fell. Suddenly everyone were, realized that the world was changed and their doom was upon them. And so when we remember that yes, the lifespan of man is limited... We only have a certain amount of time that we're here. And it's not a waste for the time we have to be patient in it. So many times we think that we have to get things done because I've only got so, many, so much time till this deadline or so long until I'm 30 or so long until I'm 60 or so long until I die or until I retire or all those things. No, we ought to be remembering that We only have so much time. And if we remember that, it aligns us towards remembering that the Lord is coming again. And we have to remember that. And that's the third truth. The third truth is that Jesus is coming again. We don't know when it will happen, but the Lord has promised to come back soon. And so we say, come Lord Jesus, come soon. Come quickly. But if we remember those three truths, we can establish and align our hearts with remembering that the Lord is here with us, that our time is limited, and He's coming back. And I hope that you take uh, hope and joy in knowing the truth of that. And based on those things that we establish our heart on in verse 9, it says, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, 
lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. If we forget to be patient and keep our hearts aligned with the, with the return of the Lord, we can tend to grumble against one another because, oh, I was in the Sunday school classroom trying to teach the kid and my the partner, the other person that was in there with me, wasn't doing a very good job. Or I was in ministry serving these people like Mary and Martha, right? And one per- Martha was doing all those things and busy with much serving and Mary was listening to the, to the words of the Lord and Martha grumbled against Mary. And so often we in the church can be tempted to grumble against one another because it's hard. Ministry is hard. Our lives are hard. There's all present in every, each and every one of us a certain amount of suffering that goes along with our daily lives. It's just the reality of it. But James here reminds us not to grumble against one another because you and I, each one of us, we're not the enemy. We're not the people or the forces of evil that are working against us. We're not what's causing the struggle. And sure, there may be certain um, failed responsibilities or uh, or times like that, But those are times to encourage one another, to take heart, to bear one another's burdens, not to grumble against one another and cause disunity because the Lord is present. The judge is at the door. He's watching. And would you like the last thing you say on this earth to be a complaint against one of your brothers or sisters? Certainly a wasted breath to use before the coming of the Lord to complain. And the Lord is always there to encourage us. Not only is He the judge that sees when we grumble against one another, He's also our help and our encourager to keep us moving forward and serving Him. He's on our side against all the forces that the enemy has against us. So let's now look at the example of the prophets and see what they have to teach us about being patient. In James uh, chapter 5, verse 10, it says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. And I also want to read out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 through 38, where it says of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. And you hear of all these miraculous things that the prophets did. You think, all right. They had faith and they saw all these miracles. And you think, oh, if I see that list of people, the Lord must have really blessed them. He must have seen to their every want and need. Well, let's keep reading. Right in the middle of verse 35, after it says, Women received their dead, raised to life again, it says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. 
They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. That's not exactly the second half of that passage that I expected to read. But that's the reality. That these prophets, who did all these great things for the Lord... were also some of the most miserable, physically, people to have ever walked this earth. Walked this earth. And it says in verse 38, it says, Of whom the world was not worthy. I can't think of anyone else in the Bible that the Lord says that of. That of these people, of this group of people, the world was not worthy. It's an amazing testament to their patience and their fortitude and perseverance and suffering. They didn't give up serving the Lord. They didn't stop speaking the truth to the people around them. They didn't stop serving the people. Even in their day-to-day lives, we look at um, the prophet who lived with the widow and her son was raised to life again. She was provided for out of just a handful of flour and a small jar of oil. The Lord provided for their needs in a time of famine, but it wasn't a luxurious, great existence that you might expect for those people that are following the Lord in such a mighty way. But if you look at uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 35... It says, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. Why? That they might obtain a better resurrection. See, they weren't investing in this life. They knew that there were riches in the life beyond for them. And if they turned on the Lord and counted for naught His provision, His compassion and mercy, and turned them over to the limited compassion and mercy of the men around them, that they would not have experienced the rewards that they did experience. And they are enjoying right now, as we speak, all of those people are in heaven right now, enjoying the comfort and mercy and provision of the Lord. Why would they trade all of that, all of that eternity, for a few moments to experience the lip service and limited compassion of men. It's a a worthless trade. It's a worthless trade to trade all of eternity for an easy life here on earth. And the opportunity is out there for us as well to be when we meet the Lord face to face, He can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. The world was not worthy of you. That's still ours to grasp. We haven't laid aside the opportunity yet to serve the Lord in that way. So what will you invest in? Let's look. There's one more example that's provided for us in the the passage. In in the last verse, verse, as you've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. 
Most of you are familiar with the with the story of Job. And if you're not, just in short, he was a very wealthy man who the devil went and asked the Lord, I see this your servant Job who you have blessed, and he only blesses you because of all the good things that God has given him. If we take away all those things, then Job will no longer bless the Lord. So God said, all right, you may take away all of Job's possessions and see if he still blesses me. And so, in just a day, Job went from being one of the richest men in his region to he lost all of his livestock, all of his crops, all of his possessions. Even his children were trapped inside of a house that were collapsed and they perished. And the only things that Job had left were his sackcloth and ashes and a few friends who were telling him that he was to blame for all of it. And you see Job struggle through one of, one of the longest ber- verses, or sorry, not verses, one of the longest books in the Bible is his struggle. But what does Job say in the middle of his struggle where he's left with literally nothing? And not only that, not as, only is he going through all the emotional anguish of having lost his family, not only is he going through all the physical turmoil, not only of having lost all of his possessions, but he's also struck with very painful boils all over his body, so he's in great physical pain. Not only that, but he has around him, his support network of his wife and his friends are telling him that he must have done something terribly wrong to deserve all of this, and he has no spiritual support at all either. He's completely and utterly alone. And in the midst of all of this suffering, of all of him having nothing, what does Job say? If we look at Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes behold, and not another. Wow. I can't imagine what was going on in the heart of Job. I have certainly never experienced anything near the agony that he was in. And Job is one of the chronologically earliest books of the Bible. Job didn't have the scriptures as we know it now. But he did have a true relationship with God. And he knew that he would stand face to face with his Redeemer. And in his flesh, not the same flesh that was giving him so much agony... It says, even though after my skin is destroyed. See, I think Job might have even been happy if his skin had been destroyed because it was causing him so much pain. But it says, after my skin is destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. He knew the next life of the resurrection, of the new body that he would enjoy. And his heart was established. 
There was absolutely nothing that even the devil himself could do to take away Job's hope. And we certainly may have our own struggles day to day. Maybe they're not as great as Job, but they certainly cause us suffering. And if our hearts are established, we have the exact same hope that Job had. And it's closer than, the, than, than Job's hope. We are closer to the return of the Lord than Job was. Indeed, he is at the door. How much should we establish our hearts? Can you look forward to eternity? Can you look forward to seeing your Savior face to face? Are you investing here and now for that, that meeting? Many of you uh, are familiar a bit with your history, you know, of Martin Luther, who started the, the Protestant Reformation. And he said, let me, I want to read you a quote of his. He said, there are only two days on my calendar. Only two days. This day and that day. Those are the only two days that were on his calendar. And I see the wisdom in those words. And Job, Job would have said, Amen, to that quote of Martin Luther's. Because Job knew that in this day, the day that he was in suffering, he was going to follow the Lord because he was firmly and utterly convinced of that day. That day when he would see his Savior face to face and behold with his, not, uh, with his eyes and not the eyes of another. Job certainly knew of patience. And so when James says to us, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. We now know exactly what he means. We know what was in the heart of Job. It's revealed to us. And what was the end of Job? What did we see? Well, after Job confesses with his mouth that he's still looking forward to the Lord, he didn't know. Job, Job prayed that he would die. He didn't know that he was ever going to get out of that suffering. But it says, by the Lord's compassion and mercy, that everything that Job had lost was restored to him and double. Because of the Lord's great compassion and mercy... And Job certainly didn't deserve all those things. It's, it shows the greatness of the Lord that he gave him back those things which were the Lord's anyway to take. All the things that we have are the Lord's anyway. We're only stewards of them. And we came into this world with nothing and it's certain that we can take nothing out. So the fact that Job received all of his possessions and double restored to him back is merely a testament to the Lord's great compassion and mercy. And we see that indeed the Lord is very compassionate and merciful, as it says in our passage. But patience has had, it had its perfect work in Job. And he learned and he was able to converse with God. It says God spoke to Job for several chapters 
And so in that patience of Job, in his faith, we see that the very character of God was revealed to him in ways that we now are learning of secondhand through him. Job's patience helped reveal to us the character of God. Isn't that amazing? And so for all of us who are patiently waiting for the Lord's provision and looking to his return, not only does the, our patience reveal to us the character of God as we wait for his provision and see his compassion and mercy, but also reveals to the others around us how faithful the Lord is and how abundantly and graciously He provides for us, for our needs, yes, and even beyond, for an eternity spent together with Him. And so as we wrap up, let's remember the example set before us of the farmer who works and tills the ground and keeps working until he sees the Lord's provision, but is patient and waiting for it because he knows that the Lord is looking out for him. Let's remember the example of the prophets who even though they did mighty things for the Lord in their ministry were also waiting for the resurrection. And let's remember the three truths that God is present and watching us that we are going to die someday and that Jesus is coming again and align our hearts and establish them in hope. And finally, let's live this day in light of that day. Just like Job. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we see indeed that Your compassion and mercy are very great. You provided Yourself as a sacrifice for us that our sins might be taken away. But... Beyond that, you provide for us a future that we can look forward to a glorious eternity spent together with you. And man, I look forward to that day, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come quickly. But Lord, as we, as we go about our day-to-day lives here, may we never forget that you are present and watching. And Lord, we can honor you in our day-to-day lives, no matter how much suffering we're going through, whether it's just a little or a lot. You are always with us. And we rejoice to know that. And Lord, I pray that You give us strength through this week, throughout the rest of our lives, to establish our hearts in hope and to look forward to that day where we will see You face to face. Lord, what a glorious day that will be. We thank You for promising it to us so that we might have hope. Strengthen our hearts as we go forward. We pray in Your own holy name. Amen.